This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Le'ilui nishmat to Laura Sinatra Bat Shira Suzanne and Le'ilui nishmat Avraham Ben Chan Yehuda and Le'ilui nishmat Yecheskel Ben Abraham. So uh, tonight, B'zad Hashem, I think we're going to be speaking about something that's, that's very important. But just to explain to you how we even got to this topic... Um, Last week or so, when I was like trying to figure out what I was going to speak about during this class, I went and I tried to do different type of you know, topics. What I, what I really wanted to speak about, give you a little bit, I guess, uh, what we'll speak about maybe in a, a different year, Bezad Hashem, was the concept of why is Rosh Hashanah before Yom Kippur? It should really be the other way around. And that was really what I wanted to speak about. And then every sefer that I opened up and everything that I was researching and I wanted to you know, bring in stories, I wanted to bring different things, and whatever it is that I tried to go and I wanted to speak about this topic, God sort of was like pushing me towards this topic that we're going to be speaking tonight. Because every sefer that I opened spoke about this. Every, th- every story that I tried to go and incorporate here spoke about this. So there's only a certain amount of hints that you, know, that you need to give someone. And then I finally got the hint, so I'm going to be speaking about this topic. Now... That is also very important that I had to tell you why I, I spoke about it. Besides the fact that even before we went on camera, I was telling you guys that I, even now, like I was revamping this entire speech within the past like 15 minutes, just moving everything uh, you know, around. And okay, so with that introduction, let us, let us begin. We know that on Rosh Hashanah, Adam Harishon was created. And on Rosh Hashanah, the same day, he was told, do not eat from the tree. And on the same day, on Rosh Hashanah, Adam ate from the tree. And on the same day, he was judged from eating of the tree. Now, his judgment consisted of a single word. And that single word was in Bereshit, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 9. It says, Vayikra Hashem Elohim El Adam. And God called upon Adam, Vayom Ayaka. And God told him one word, Ayaka. Ayaka means, where are you? What's going on? Where are you? Now, the Baal Tanya, Rav Shem Zaman was once asked by one of the Russian czars, czar officials, and they said, well, what, is, what does this mean in, this, in the Bible? That it says that God is asking Adam, where are you? God created Adam a few hours earlier, and then God is saying, you know, Adam, I can't fight. God wasn't playing Marco Polo with, with, you know, Adam. What was this? God's like, hey, Adam, what's going on? Where are you located? You know, he, he wasn't trying to find you. So what does this mean? Answers Rav Shem Zaman of he says, of course God knows where Adam is. God wasn't asking where he was, his physical location. But God was asking, where is his spiritual status? Ayaka, where are you? Just a few hours ago, I created you. I put you on the highest pinnacle of creation. I put you so high. And then now, just a few hours later, you sinned. Ayaka, where did you go? Where are you, spiritually speaking? This added, Rav Shneir the Balatanya. He says that this God asked the same question that he asked Adam Arishan. He asked every human being, each and every single one of us. He asked us that one word, Ayeka, where are you? Now, the problem is, is that we know that God asked this question now. And we know we have to reach a certain level of where we need to be. But then we come to a certain place, but how can we ever reach this level where we need to be? Like, how can we ever reach our potential? So during the time of Yechezkel, the people over there, the Jewish people, they didn't believe that tshuva would help them. And with that mindset, they said, you know what? If this is where we are, this is the scenario, so let us just continue to sin. Let us continue to live our life this way. And if we perish, we perish. And even, they, they thought even furthermore, that even if tshuva would help us, 
you know, but like it's so difficult to go from one extreme to another extreme that at some point you're like, forget it. You know, I can't fix it. So there's two aspects over here. Number one, tshuva won't even help. Number two is that even if I, even if tshuva would help, how am I able going to be able to go and change my life? I, I can't. It's, it's incomprehensible to me for to, to change my life. And that's the goal for tonight's class, to speak about two aspects over here. Aspect number one is tshuva for people that think that it won't help. And part of that also is the aspect of partial tshuva, which people are not aware of, partial repentance. There is, you know, it's not all or nothing. There is partial credit over here. And also, obviously, the aspect, thinking like, what can we do already? The time of the year that we're dealing with on Rosh Hashanah, when, this is generally what people should do. I don't know if everybody does it or not, but when you're coming to the end of the year, you should reflect on the previous year. And both physically, spiritually, emotionally, intellectually, and all aspects of your life. How was your past year? Now, I don't know if, if there's not a single person in this world that could say that this year wasn't a huge year. This past year was a ridiculously huge year. It was like beyond like the level of even, you know, understanding. For, you know, just, just when you, you think about the sheer amount of people that passed away. Uh, and what did they pass away from? They passed away from a, a tiny minuscule disease. And it's not only that they died, but the entire world was turned upside down. The entire world went, went on its head and shoulders. To think about like what the world went through, uh, you think about the world runs on, on money. It runs on the economy. Businesses were shut down for months at a time. Businesses were destroyed. And, and there are many businesses that are never going to be reopened again due to this. You also have people at the same point in time that made millions. And I'm not just the people that are selling masks and toilet paper and you know hand sanitizer. There, there are people that made a tremendous amount of money during this time. And you look at it, there's, there's two flips. Where in every year you have changes where people die, people make money, people don't make money. But this past year was like tr- drastic, like it was crazy. Like if somebody were to go and tell you last Rosh Hashanah that there is going to be no congregating, there's no one's going to be going together, you, um, there's not going to be any flying, airports, forget about airports, countries are closing down. Everybody needs to be stuck in their home for months at end. Everybody has to wear masks. With just that information, you would initially think, you know what, that's World War III. That's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with the end of the world. <laughs> the only plausible you know, explanation for it. So when you go over here and you think back, all this, everything that happened this year was all already decreed last Rosh Hashanah. Now we're coming in a few days, not even a few days, tomorrow night, we're coming to Rosh Hashanah and we're coming and everything that's going to happen this next year is going to be decided then. And it's something that really brings us into like consideration. Can we do something to make ourselves have a better judgment? Can we do something to influence ourselves to have a good year? Can we be just like those of this past year that survived? They not only survived, they thrived. They made their, their families grew together. And not only that, they made tremendous amount of money during this time of the year. There are people that were signed last year not to have an amazing year. And they had a great year. And there are people, unfortunately, that were signed to have a not good year. And those people, not everybody made it to this Rosh Hashanah. Not everybody's pun business, you know, made it. Not everybody's marriage made it this year. So we have to think, which category are we? And we want to do whatever it is that we can to put ourselves into the good category, into the category that will bring us the greatest amount of success, bacha, hatzlacha, and everything that we do. So that's what we're thinking about coming Rosh Hashanah. But the question, 
And unfortunately, that we ask our, ourselves, and, and it's sort of our conscious sort of like, just like pops it up and be like, all right, it's judgment day. You know, like I get it. But can I really change? Like, can I really change anything up there? Is there something that I could even do? And the saddest thing is, is that we kind of give up before we try. And this is true for everything in life. You know, sometimes some people don't want to get hurt. Some people want to stick in a certain uh, either a business or a certain you know relationship or whatever it is that they're, they're sticking with, just because they they they're too nervous to change. They they sort of give up before they even start. And says Rabbi Yaakov Galinsky, says you want to know what the biggest obstacle to do tshuva is? Is that aspect of of depression? That the fact of like I just can't do anything anymore. I'm done. I can't do it. I I you know sort of like this giving up that I just can't do it anymore. The Stipler, the Stipler, uh, just for everyone who doesn't know, Stipler was Rabbi Yaakov Yisrael Kanievsky. He was the father of Rabbi Chaim Kanievsky, the Gadol Adol now. He quotes a Gemara in Bachot, page 5b. And the Gemara brings a few stories down regarding suffering. And there was a, cert, a certain rabbi by the name of Rabbi Chia Bar Abba. And this Rabbi Chia Bar Abba, he fell sick. Rabbi Yochanan came to visit him. And Rabbi Yochanan goes over to Rabbi Chiyabarba and says, do you cherish affliction? Do you, do you appreciate the, the suffering that you're going with? First of all, we have to stop there for a second and be like, what type of question is that? Like, who asks, like, you know, someone's suffering, be like, so are you, enjo- you know, are you enjoying the suffering? It's not like, you know, people are, you know, like twisted and be like, yes, I love the suffering, give me more. No, what was the, the, what was the rabbi asking the other rabbi saying, do you enjoy, do you cherish the afflictions? And the stipler would, you know, would say, and stipler went through a very hard life. And he would say, you don't know. And he told this to Rabbi Yaakov Galinsky. He says, you don't know how beloved is suffering. He says, I would not sell my suffering for all the money in the world. He, said, he goes on and he says that suffering has the power to reduce punishment, to purify a person, to bring them closer to God. Now, true, we don't ask for suffering, don't want suffering. But the suffering that came to us already, they're gold. They're worth more than gold. So this is what Rabbi Yochanan came and asked Rabbi Chia. He says, you know, the suffering is worth so much. Do you want them? What did Rabbi Chia say? Rabbi Chia answered, I do not desire them and I do not desire their reward. Why? They're causing me to be too Torah. When you're suffering, you can't concentrate. You can't concentrate. You can't learn Torah. You can't learn Torah. This is your main focus in this world. So what am I doing over here? I don't want them and I don't want the reward, Rabbi Chia says. So what did Rabbi Yochanan do? Rabbi Yochanan took his hand and he healed him. He sort of, he made, he, he, Rabbi Chia recovered from, the, from his sickness. That's story number one. The Gemara goes on and says story number two. Rabbi Eliezer, Elazar fell sick. And Rabbi Yochanan, as per his tradition to visit, he came and he visited also Rabbi Elazar. And he sees Rabbi Elazar is crying. So Rabbi Yochanan goes and tells him, he says, uh, why are you crying? Are you crying because you didn't learn enough Torah? He says, don't worry. He says, it doesn't matter whether one learns a lot or a little, as long as his intensity is L'Shem Shemayim, for the sake of heaven. Meaning that, you know, he wasn't able to, to do the learning. He was sick. He was going through, you know, affliction. So he wasn't able to, to utilize his full potential. He says, it's not, as long as you did whatever you can, that's all you need to do. And especially when you're doing it, L'Shem Shemayim, for the sake of heaven. And then Rabbi Yochanan continues, says, maybe you're crying because you're poor. Rabbi Leza was very poor. He didn't have enough food to feed, you know, to, to, to put on his table. He, so Rabbi Yochanan went and answered him. He says, you know, don't cry. He says, not everybody merits both worlds. Not everybody merits this world where they're wealthy. And that they have the ability to say, I learned Torah. He says, some people have either or, some people have none. And then he goes and he says, maybe you're crying because you're childless. He didn't have any children. He says, don't cry, says Rabbi Yochanan. Why? And he takes out a bone and he shows it to him. And he says, this is a bone from my 10th son. Rabbeinu Haigayin goes and explains. And he says, Rabbi Yochanan went and he buried 10 sons. 
and the tenth son fell into a cooking pot filled with broiling water, and his flesh melted from his bone. And Rabbi Yochanan kept a small bone of his small finger, the size smaller of a barley kernel that does not contaminate, doesn't, uh, you know, there's, there's no issue of tumal here. And he wrapped it in his cloak, and he would carry it around with him. And what did he use a bone of his child that passed away? He used it to, and to comfort other people. But the question is, how is this comforting? How is this comforting? Here is someone's mourning, and here you're showing him a bone of your child. And the answer is, is when Rabbi Yochanan would go and show people the, the bone of his ten son, how are they consoled? They said, you know what? At least I don't have these types of tzaras. Rabbi Yochanan went and he buried so many children. So he, he look, at, look at the level for Rabbi Yochanan, that he went and he used his own suffering to comfort other people. Many people, they use their own suffering to dwell and, uh, and sort of in their own misery and sort of go into their dark wormhole, the black hole that they have, and they, they can't really get out of it. Here Rabbi Yochanan took his suffering and he went and he helped other people with it. So now finally, Rabbi Yochanan went through these four questions for Rabbi Lazar, and then he goes and he asks him the same question he asked Rabbi Chia. And he goes and he says, do you want, do you appreciate, do you welcome the suffering? So you know what, Rabbi, you know what the, was the answer? Rabbi Lazar answered him, he says, I don't want them nor the reward. So Rabbi Yochanan went, took his arm, and again healed him, and he became better. Ask the stipler. He says, why did Rabbi Yochanan go and ask all these questions? Oh, is it, you know, the fact that you don't have any money, you don't have any children, you don't, you're not able to learn Torah, is, you know, you know, and then finally he went and says, oh, do you want suffering? Why didn't Rabbi Yochanan go just like the first story? The first story, somebody was sick, he went over to Rabbi Yochanan who was sick, and he healed him. He went over to, the next story should be the same thing, he went to Rabbi Yochanan and healed him. Why over here, all of a sudden, there's all these introductory remarks, all these four questions that he's answering him, and then finally he asked him the final question, do, uh, do you want the suffering? Answers the stipler. And he goes and he says, if Rabbi Yochanan would have went immediately and he asked Rabbi Lazar, he says, do you want suffering? Do you want me to heal you? You know what Rabbi Lazar would have said? Rabbi Lazar would have said, leave me alone. Let me die. I'm done. He was feeling so dejected. He was depressed about his inability to concentrate fully on learning Torah. He couldn't go to that. He didn't have an ability to put a slice of bread on his table. He was also childless. He did, life was not good to him. And now, He's sick. So what's the point of getting better? So what did Rabbi Yochanan do? Rabbi Yochanan wisely countered every one of his claims. He saw, there was one difference over here. He came over here and he saw the Rabbi Lazar was crying. He saw that something was bothering him. So he said, you know what, let me try it and see what's going, what's bothering you. He went on each point of where he had a possible suffering, a possible problem, and he went and he answered it. He says, oh, you're worried about your portion of learning Torah? Don't worry about it. Everybody has their portion of learning Torah. And you, as long as you did what you need to and everything that you had to, Hashem Shemaim, you're good. Oh, are you worried because of poverty? Don't worry. Not everybody has wealth and the ability to set a learn. Oh, you're worried about, the, you know, that you don't have any children? Look at me. He says, he says, look at, you know, and he showed him the bone of his 10th son. So now that he answered each and every single one of his problems, now what was left to discuss? What was left to discuss was the suffering. Oh, so now you have the suffering. So now he went and he says, do you want the suffering? He says, not the, not the suffering nor the reward. So now he went and he was able to, to, to heal him. Says Rabbi Yaakov Galinsky. So this is a nice story, a nice lesson, but what does this have to do with Chuba? Because when a person goes, says Rabbi Yaakov Galinsky, and a person does a chishibon anafesh, he goes and he thinks about what he needs to go and change, what she needs to go and, and repair and fix in her own life. Those things can go one of two ways. The two, like, uh, let's call it the, the, the direct, you know, opposites. You have over here one where a person thinks, you know, what could I change? And then thinking and thinking, be like, you know what? 
nothing really. I'm kind of perfect in every single way. Those type of people, by the way, are not the best spouses. The people that think that they're perfect in every single way. Then you have, you know, the person number two, where after about 30 seconds of contemplating your life, you're, you're like, wait a minute, I have to change like everything in my life. Like there is no way. And you give up. You're the, you know, you, 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 feel in the, you fall into desperation. You fall into depression. You fall into, you know, the, you sort of like, there's no way I'm going to be able to reach the level that I need to reach to. I pray, ah, barely pray. I don't even remember saying the words. Oh, when I learn, I space out. Oh yeah, I come to Torah classes. Yeah, but I'm on my phone the whole time. I can't even concentrate. Oh, uh, you know, but my mitzvot, I barely even know what I'm doing. Shabbat, I don't even know if I'm keeping Shabbat. Maybe I am, maybe I'm not. Who knows over here? The second that you go through your whole life, you'll be like, wait a minute, what did I do? Am I doing anything? Am I even Jewish? Am I doing a good job? And you might as well say, you know what? Like, forget about it. How am I going to change everything? It's impossible. Let me just leave it this way. Says Rabbi Yaakov Galinsky, let him take the approach of Rabbi Yochanan. You know how Rabbi Yochanan did? Rabbi Lezer had four things that were bothering him. Each one needed a different answer. Says Rabbi Yaakov Galinsky, the same is true for us. When we go and we think about our life, we think about what we have to fix, and we realize the list is long, the list is so much, we have so much to do. But you know what? We're not expected to be perfect. All we have to do is focus on each thing in the, in the space where it, where it needs to. You can't focus on everything at one time because then you'll crash and burn. One thing at a time. That's the only way that we're able to do it. When the concept of God going over to each and every single one, and they say, Ayaka, where are you? And by the way, whether you like it or not, that's going to happen. You know, there, there's, there's, a, there's a spiritual voice that goes out and says, you know, my dear son, my dear daughter, where are you in your life? And we are very likely, as I speak to my, for myself, very likely not the level that we need to be. And we feel like, okay, what, you know, how can we even go and improve? How can we even begin to, 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 to like work on that level? I want to share with you something very important, a one-liner that's very, very, very important. Think about that, think about a ladder. And you have to go climb the ladder. Spirit, this is a spiritual ladder. This is a very, very important concept. That it doesn't matter what step of the ladder you are on. It matters what direction you are going. So if somebody's on the first step, the lowest of the lowest level spiritually, but they're heading up, they are much greater than the person on the 16th step, but they're heading down. See, it doesn't only matter where you are, it matters the direction that you're going to. So all we need to do is show God that we're going in the right direction. Show God, you know what, like, okay, we're here. I know that we need to be up here, but we're not there yet. But you know what, I'm going to there. I'm working towards that. This is how the evil inclination works on us. The evil inclination goes in the Gan Shabbat page 105b goes and says, the evil inclination will come to you and say, you know, do this, do this sin. Not a crazy sin, do this sin. And tomorrow say, do that sin. And slowly, slowly, you know, he pushes the, pushes the limit. Until finally, says the Gemara, you convince the person to go and serve idols. See, the, the way the evil inclination goes, the evil inclination goes slowly, slowly, goes each and one step at a time. The same thing is, is the way we are supposed to do it. We have to learn from the evil inclination. We do, today we're just improving this. Tomorrow we're just improving this. We're going slowly, slowly. Before we know it, we know the whole Torah. Well, we know everything. We, we're, we're on the highest level that we could be. But Yitzhak Blazer, he was the student of Yisrael Salanter. He, wrote in the, he writes in the Koch Ar. He said that there's something very, very fascinating about the mitzvah of tshuva. That even if you do tshuva for part of a sin, meaning that when we're speaking when, you know, of, of like partial tshuva, people think, you know what, uh, okay, uh, let's say I do a sin of Lashon Allah, so you know, I, I only you know, will, will, will fix you know, 
I'll reduce it. And that's, what, that's how people think that is a partial sin. Says Rabbi Yitzhak Blazer, no, no, no. Imagine you don't do, you need to do tshuva on a certain, uh, whatever, a certain sin. So, and you're doing tshuva on only part of that sin. So it's only saying a certain type of Lashon HaRa that you stop yourself from saying. So even though it's only part of a sin, that still it has a mitzvah of tshuva. This is as long, obviously he, he brings down, is as long as you're not, you know, not doing tshuva on the rest of the, of the sin because out, of, out of rebellion. Meaning that there are some, because that's already a mumal. There are some people that they'll say they'll never do the mitzvah of a brit milah for the children. They'll never do uh, nida, and they do it out of like rebellion towards God. That's in a different level. But as long and the majority of us are not in that level, the majority of us are on the, on the state that if we're not doing tshuva on something, it's just because it's too hard. It's just because it's too difficult for us to get to that. So what about if we just do tshuva on part of that sin? So only, whatever, you know, like, like a certain aspect of whatever sin, I don't want to start giving examples uh, for very, very obvious reasons, because then I don't want people to use that example, You're like, okay, I'll just do this part, but this sin I'll do it, and then it'll be okay. But you think of each and, your, each and every one in your own mind, what is it that you have difficulties with, and if you say, you know, there's no way that I could do tshuva for this whole thing, but part of it you could do, right? Like a little part of it, like an aspect of it, you know, like, okay, I'll give you one example. Let's say, you know, every Friday you don't speak Lashon Allah. Like that, that you could do, like that's very simple, that's very obvious, that's something that's, that's doable. Says Rabbi Yaakov Galinsky, and he quotes this from Rabbi Salanter, who quotes this from the Gemara in Menachas, page 43b. What do you think is a greater punishment? Let's say somebody doesn't wear tzitzit, but there's two aspects of tzitzit. There is a mitzvah of wearing the tzitzit, the, the white strings, and then there is a mitzvah of wearing the tchelet, the blue strings. Now, I'm not speaking about it today, I'm not getting into that discussion, but assuming at a time when everybody was wearing both, those two colors, what's a greater punishment? Not wearing the white or not wearing the blue? So the answer is, not wearing the white tzitzit is a greater punishment. You'll get a greater punishment than not wearing the, the blue. Why? Says Rabbi Shal Salanter, says when a king gives a command to two servants, for one of them he says, I want you to bring me a seal made out of clay. And for another one he goes and he says, I want you to give me a seal made out of gold. Both of those servants, they don't listen. They don't go and they don't give anything. Who do you think the king is going to punish more? The king is going to punish more, the one that didn't bring made out of clay. The king says, what do you mean? It was so easy for you to go and get the clay. Just go out to the store, buy the clay, and you get me the seal. But for the one for the gold, he says, listen, the gold, it's so difficult. How am I going to find gold, a seal of gold? It's very difficult. I wouldn't be able to do it. So the king says, you know what, fine, your punishment is less. The king will punish the person that didn't do the easier job much greater than the person that didn't do the more difficult job. In the same way it goes in Shemaim with God. That if you had an easy mitzvah and you didn't do it, the punishment is so great. Be like, why didn't you do it? And this is, you know, where you know, I speak about, you know, to people that, let's say, are not wearing tzitzit. And by the way, this is a, a very good time to throw in a, um, a shout out to Project Tzitzis. Whoever doesn't know, Project Tzitzis is an unbelievable organization that um, I was lucky to be, you know, you know, uh, uh, you know part of the, in the distribution in one, of my, in one of my classes about a few months ago, pre, you know, uh, pre-corona that what they do is, is that anybody who doesn't have the funds to go and buy tzitzit, they go and they buy it for you. And well, I gave a class in a certain, um, you know, in a certain place in Brooklyn. They came with, I don't know, 50, 60 pairs of tzitzit. Everybody who wants gets it free. I don't even know. I think they've given over 
you know, they've given thousands upon thousands of pairs of tzitzit already and now for free. There's, there, you know, there's one guy who went and, he's, and he pays from his own pocket. He gives people to go and give, give them money to go and put on uh, a tzitzit and buys it for them. Now, why, why did I think about the concept of tzitzit? Because tzitzit is such an easy, for a guy, it's such an easy mitzvah. It's just literally putting something under your clothing. And people go and the guys go and they complain, oh, I don't know, it's so hot, it's itchy, it's this, it's that, they're making these, but it's, but it, you just, so put it on the shirt. You know, it's right, it's right under your clothes. It, it's almost nothing. It's so cheap. It's so easy to accomplish. It's so easy to do. The scary thing is, is that you have something that is an easy mitzvah and you don't do it, the punishment is so much greater. If you have the ability to go and open up a sidu and it's just easy for you, how long does it take for to say bachot, to say a few things, and you don't do it, the punishment is so much greater because it's so easy. All you have to do is spend two minutes of your time to do the mitzvah. Now, what happens if you have an easy mitzvah and God puts great importance on it, but now you can only do part. For you, it's difficult. Whatever it is for you. So part of it you could do. So at least focus on the small part of it. Says Rabbi Yaakov Galinsky that God attributes great importance about being meticulous, about minimizing sin. And if you find a particular mitzvah very difficult, maybe one aspect of it you'll find easy. So for example, let's say somebody finds you know praying very, very difficult. So what they do is, okay, so instead of praying the whole, whatever it is, instead of, you know, people think it's all or nothing. And also pray a little bit, just do a little bit and that's it. And, and at least you get one aspect of it. There was a, there was a, a court case that came up in, in, uh, in Belgium, in Antwerp. It came to the Bettin of Reb Chaim Kreisworth. And you know what the Bettin was? The Bettin was claiming that there was a broker who brokered a deal. And he was supposed to get point, listen to this, point zero zero eight percent of the profits. But the business owner agreed only to give him 0.006. So they came to betting. Why did they came to betting? What were they fighting about? They were fighting about 0.002%. You think about that, that's crazy. Like you're fighting about less than, uh, you're talking about less than 10% of a percent. You're talking about a, such a small percentage that's barely nothing. Like what are they even arguing about? But then if I were to go and tell you that this deal is billions of dollars, and that's what we're talking about, 0.002% makes a huge difference when you're dealing with billions of dollars. So when we're looking at the spiritual world, and we're looking at the, all these mitzvot, and we're only able to get a small aspect of that mitzvah, you think about it, even though it's a small aspect, but you're dealing in the billions. So even that small aspect is worth so, so much. So for example, let's say the example used before regarding prayer. If somebody goes and doesn't have the ability to focus and concentrate on every word of tefillah, it's very difficult. So what about just focusing on the conclusion of each bracha? Just at the end, just at the end of the prayer part, of the, of the let's say, the paragraph, that's what you focus on. Imagine, says Rabbi Yaakov Glensky, how lighter our final sentence would be if we would minimize the sinning in the areas that are easy for us to avoid sinning. Meaning that we could do something called partial tshuva. Partial tshuva, tshuva just on whatever, just one aspect of it. Or if you can't do one aspect, one day of it. Whatever it is that you could, that you could do, focus on that. Then this brings us to, the, to, to part number two. And part number two is what about those people that can do tshuva? And this is such an important thing. I get, I get questions like this all the time. For people that go and they learn and they hear there are certain things that if you do certain sins, there is no tshuva for those sins. And if there is no tshuva for those sins, so what, I'm a done deal, I'm done. And says, says the Midrash, and also the Zohar brings us down as well, that every single day there is a heavenly voice that comes out and it says, Shuvu banim shavavim, return wayworld children, come home. 
asks the Sefer Haredim. It goes and says, who is it being directed at? We don't hear this. And, he, and the answer that is given, that it goes into the heart of every single Jew. Every single soul hears it. And that's why sometimes you hear, you know, these Baal Tshuvas, people that are coming back. And how do they come back? You know, like I can tell you personal cases that I was involved with, people that were living with non-Jews. They had a life. They got up. They moved to a different state. They moved away from their non-Jewish girlfriend. They went and they lost their business, lost their job, lost their everything, and went to yeshiva. And you ask, how is it possible that someone went and uprooted their life? It's so difficult. How could you do that? One of the answers is, is that there is every day, there is a heavenly voice that says, go return to me, my children, return. Our souls hear it. And every, there, there's a certain time where you're, you're like, you know, you have this, this like inkling, you know, like, you know, maybe I should do better. So some of us, you know, shut it down right away and be like, shh, don't, don't talk to me, conscience. Other of us go and they say, you know what, maybe I should change. Maybe I should focus a bit. But then what happens when they're like, okay, fine, you know what, let me do tshuva, let me go and come back. But then they start saying, you know what, but how am I going to go do tshuva? There are sins that I've done that says, the Zara says that that's done, you can never do tshuva for it. In fact, the Rambam, Maimonides, it devotes an entire chapter in Hilchot Tshuva, the fourth chapter. It says 24 things that prevent a person from doing tshuva. About three years ago or so, we gave a class going through all these 24 things. 24 things that prevent a person from doing tshuva. And let me just give you some points of just like, these are serious, serious sins that if someone does that, God sort of blocks the tshuva. Number, let's go through a handful. Number one, somebody who causes the masses to sin, causes many people to do a sin. Also, that same category, someone that holds back many from people from doing a positive command, a positive uh, mitzvah. And Rablaid Malin, the, the son-in-law of the Biskorov, says, you know what this even counts as? If you have someone in yeshiva, yeshiva bacha, someone who sits and learning yeshiva, but instead of sitting and learning with his gemara, what does he do? He goes and he wastes time, he schmoozes, he talks with other people. So he's bringing into the bet midrash, he's bringing in this like era of, of like, you know, laxity, this, this like, like not caring, like relaxed state where people are like, you know what, he's talking, let's talk a little bit of schmooze. And what it, so it says, says something crazy, it says of Leib Malin, he goes and says, this person is preventing other people from doing a mitzvah. He's also, he's leading his people, his friends away from, from doing a learning. This also, you have people, unfortunately nowadays, that convince people to leave religion. They go, and they post on Facebook, they post on social media, they have their blogs, all of a sudden, everyone's a writer, everyone's a speaker, everyone's a rabbi, everyone's a priest, everyone's whatever it is, everyone's a, you know, a doctor and everything, and they're posting all online and convincing people to go and leave Judaism, leave their religion, leave the, leave the Torah. And they go and they say, oh, the rabbis don't know what they're talking about, they go on and on. These are people that are causing other Jewish people to go away. These people, says the Rambam, that God prevents them from doing tshuva. There was once a, to tell you the, speaking about, you know, these, these uh, self-proclaimed atheists who claim that there's nothing and they post all their nonsense online. There was once a, you know, self-proclaimed Jewish atheist and he didn't care anything about, uh, about Judaism. So much so that he went and he sent his kid, he sent his son to Catholic day school. And as the son grew older, he was learning about the Christian theology, because what else you know, are going to speak at a Catholic day school? So one evening during dinner, he's sitting over there, and all of a sudden the son starts speaking to his father about the Catholic theology of the Trinity. You know, there's the Father, the Son, the Daughter, the Holy Ghost, and he's speaking about all, these, all the, 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 the Trinity, and, and he's speaking about what he learned, and what the Father told him, what the priest told him, and this, all the lessons that he learned. Finally, the... This, this Jewish atheist is getting so angry and he starts boiling up and then he finally he just like bangs his hand on the table and he goes, listen here son and listen this very, very well because I'm going to say once and once only. There is only one God and we don't believe in him. That's it. There's no trinity. So every Jew 
Every Jew, no matter what they claim, deep down, they have some sort of connection. There's some sort of connection to God. And there is a little voice that goes out and says, come, return, return even you. But then what happens if they go and they say, you know what, maybe I should change my ways. Maybe I should come back. And they start, they open up the L'Chot the, They start learning the Rabbah of the fourth chapter. They say, wait a minute, what's going on up here? If somebody goes and leads the Jewish people astray, they prevent people from doing mitzvot, they make people do sins, God is going to prevent them, block them from doing tshuva. So I don't have any hope, so what am I going to do? Forget about it. I'll just give up. Furthermore, the Rambam says that somebody who goes and says, I will sin and then repent, then that uh, God will not uh, will, will hold back his tshuva. Also people that go and they laugh at mitzvot, they say, oh, nidah, so just, why would somebody do that? And they make fun of it. Or somebody who goes, says the Rambam, who hates admonishment, hates rebuke. There are also somebody, let's say a, a guy who goes and he looks at women that are forbidden to him. And he says, what did I do? I didn't do anything wrong. I just, was just looking. I didn't do anything. I didn't touch. I didn't say anything. I didn't do anything. I was just looking. Those people, peop, God prevents them from doing tshuva. Furthermore, let's bring another two. If somebody goes and suspects worthy people, and he says, what? I didn't do anything wrong. He says, what did I do? I just suspected maybe he did something wrong. I didn't, you know, I didn't actually say, you know, that he did. I just suspected him. That also is in the category. Also in the category is somebody who speaks lashon gossip and slander. That is also that. But let's take this one step further. Let's take it. This is what the Rambam brings down. The Rambam, you want to go look at it, the fourth chapter in Hilchot Shuvah. But the Gemara brings down also a Gemara about Elisha ben Abuah, known as Acher. The Gemara in Chagiga, page fifteen a. There was a bat call. There was a voice from heaven that went out and says, "Shuvu badim shavayim, return wayward children. Everybody, return." But then it added, it said, except for Acher. Acher, you don't, you don't, you don't come back. Tosus goes and explains that Acher was riding his horse on Yom Kippur, which fell out on Shabbat, and he heard this batko coming out from the Kodesh Kadashim. And he heard, return, return, except for Acher. You think Acher is going to go and return and be like, wait a minute, every, God is literally telling me, I hear it, that says that you will never be able to come back. Everybody could come back except for Acher. And furthermore, to make this even more, the Zohar brings down sins for which there is no rectification. There's no tshuva. So you have Acher over here. And you have a bunch of people that, that you, know, uh, you know, follow in his, uh, you know, in, in his footstep. What did Acher do? Acher said, you know what? Let me forget about the next world then. If, I'm not, if I can't get to the next world, let me stick in this world. And he went and he tried to enjoy this world. But then when you think about it, how could you have an intelligent person with such lofty ideas? Yeah, we reach such a high level. How could he enjoy the, the materialism of this world? So he goes and he leaves it. But what happens? We know that Acher spent over 200 years in Gehenom until the death of Rabbi Yochanan. Until Rabbi Yochanan. But as Rabbi Yaakov Galinsky says, what should he have done? Should he have done tshuva? The gates were literally locked to him. They were locked. There was no way of him doing tshuva. Just like the categories of the Rambam, just like the categories of the Zohar, the gates are locked. They did, someone does certain sins, that's it. It's done, it's game over. There's nothing to talk about. Ask Rabbi Yaakov Galitzi, what could he have done? You know what he answers, Rabbi Yaakov Galitzi? You know what he should have done? He should have kept on knocking on that locked door. And he, I want to share with you, because I'm going to quote a bunch of sources now, just to show you how strong this is. Rabbeinu Hananel writes in Chagiga, page 15a, that if Acher would have done tshuva, he would have not been thrown out. Because the gate, it's, even though the gate can be closed, it's never locked to those who do tshuva. The Reshit Chochmah, source number two in Sha'ar Kedushah, writes that even for the sins that the Zohar says that tshuva won't help, if one does tshuva, it will be accepted, even Acher. The Gemara in Psachim, page 86b, goes and says that whoever tell, whoever, whatever the host tells you to do, you should do except for leave. The Gemara goes and explains who's the host. The host is HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And <clears throat> because what he really wants is he wants you to return to him. 
except that he's going to test you first. So even if he says you can't come in, you could still come in. It's just a test. This is also what the Maharit says. The Maharit says and says if somebody went and committed the three cardinal sins, he did it the three worst sins, murder, idolatry, or immorality, still he could do tshuva, nothing stands the way of tshuva. And if he would have repented completely, God would have you know, accepted him. The Shla Kadosh also writes in Shah Kadusha, if Acha would have done tshuva properly, Hashem would have welcomed him with both hands. And this goes the same thing for Paro. We know the famous question of Paro. What happened? Paro was, you know, Moshe Rabbeinu goes to Paro and says, let the Jewish people out. Says God, I'm going to harden his heart and he's not going to be able to let people out. The Chida goes and says that even though I've hardened his heart, he still had free choice. He had less of free choice, but he still had free choice. He still had, because what free choice is never denied. This is true for Elisha bin Avua known as Acher. This is true for Paro and this is true for anybody else who gets to the level of sin that was, the tshuva was blocked. And this, the problem is that people don't read the end of the chapter of Rambam, Ramanides, in the end of the fourth chapter. How does he conclude? He goes and he concludes. He lists 24 sins that prevents blocks, holds backs, tshuva. But then the Rambam concludes his chapter. He says, even though all these people, all these and similar transgressions, even though they hold back repentance, they do not prevent it entirely. If these people repent, he is about tshuva and he has a portion in the world to come. So we have to know, that no matter how far you have fallen, no matter how far you have gone, no matter if you have done sins, which you think there is no way of you turning back, there is tshuva for anything and everything. That even if you're in a category of sins where it's locked, you could still, as long as you just keep on knocking, the door will open. I want to share with you a story that... How did I come through this story? As I was... Like the way that I started the class is that I wanted to look for a story for a completely different topic. And it just wasn't working out for me. And I was, I was opening up you know, storybook after storybook to try to find... I always like to incorporate some sort of story to go. It helps people concentrate. So I went and I started opening up. I went through maybe a few storybooks. And I usually, when I, write a, when, I, when I read a story and I think that I could use it in a certain class, I write a little note and then I could you know, keep it for further uh, reference. And I go through a few different, uh, you know, stories, and nothing is fitting the, 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 you know, the concept that I want to discuss. Until finally, I'm, I'm like, I'm like, God, what do you want? I'm like, I can't. I, I need your help over here. And then I open up one of Rabbi Chaim Walder's books. Well, you know that Chaim Walder is a famous author, writes a lot about the people's uh, true stories. And I, I was on a point, it was so late at night, I was literally sitting right over here near my, my bookcase over here. I was like already sitting here with piles of books over here, storybooks, going after one after another. And I'm like, you know what, God, fine. You know, forget, I take a book out and I just open it. And this is the story that I want to share with you. And there's a reason why I gave you that introduction as well. Reb Chaim Walter goes and brings down this story, this fascinating story. It says there was once a director, we'll call him Chaim. This director had a, um, this organization which dealt with different types of therapies for children and also helped with advanced courses for teachers who needed you know, certain, you know, you know, uh, let's say, specialties in certain areas. So this director one day, he sees somebody in the waiting room, an older gentleman, very well-dressed man, uh, you know, in his high, it looked like somewhere in his high 60s. And uh, you know, the director goes and says, you know, can I uh, help you? Chaim goes and asks him. And, you know, this, this well-dressed elderly gentleman, he was very, like, hesitant to speak. And he, he was like, you know, can I have a, you know, and he, and he saw him, he's like, can I have, like, a pamphlet or something that I can read through? And the director said, yeah, of course. Chaim goes and hands him a pamphlet of all the courses and everything that they do in that organization. And he starts flipping through the pages. And, uh, you know, the director is, like, standing with him. He says, you know, why don't you come to my office? We can discuss what you're looking for. 
And he says, fine. He goes and he sits down to the, in, in the office and this well-dressed man is just flipping through the pages. Finally, after like a few moments, he goes and this well-dressed gentleman goes and points him to one, uh, you know, one, one uh, you know, page and he says, can you tell me about this one? And the director says, yeah, this is a hydrotherapy for children. Um, and he stops him for a second. He's like, are you looking for like a grandchild? He's like too old for his children. He's like, you look for a grandchild. So he's like, yeah, you could put it something like that. It's for a grandchild. So he says, listen, if you like that type of, you know, course that we could, we could definitely do it, take a registration form. But you should know we need to go and have a signature from the parents, a grandparent signature isn't enough. And then this well-dressed elderly gentleman says, you know what, you know, I'd like, I'd like to see something else. Um... And he goes and he starts uh, flipping through something else and he points into a different uh, course. And he says, what about this one? So Chaim, the director, goes up and says, listen, this is a, a three-year program for a degree in special education. He says, are you interested in this for yourself? So, because the director goes and tells him, he says, you know, you have to be, you have to have a teacher certificate in order to, uh, you know, apply for this course. Do you have a teacher certificate? And the guy says, no, you know, I, I don't. And he says, you know, what, let, let me look a little bit more. And he starts flipping over the pages more. And at this point in time, the director was getting a little bit impatient. You know, like, you know what? The director goes and says, you know what? Just take the Cadillac home and look through it and then come back and tell me what you want. And this man goes and he says, I can't. And in his mind, the director says, he says, you know what? Probably because he doesn't want his wife to know that he's taking a chorus. You know how it works. So he's like, and, and he's just like, in his mind, this is what the director is thinking. And all of a sudden, the last thing that the director expected to hear comes out of this distinguished elderly gentleman looking man. And he goes and he says, I don't know how to read. And then this older gentleman started crying. And the director was sitting there shocked. Stunned. He didn't know what to do. He's, there was not a sound in the room. Like everybody was quiet. He went, the director went up, closed the door, didn't even know how to address the situation, gave him a box of tissues. And all he, all, he was just like an elderly gentleman, well dressed, just sitting there and crying in his, in his office. And, you know, after a few moments, when the elderly gentleman goes in and composes himself, he goes and he tells him his story. He says, you know, I went to school in the days when they didn't really have all the psychology and remedial training. They didn't know about dyslexia, learning disabilities, ADHD, ADD, all these different things. They didn't know about it. And he says, you know, when I went to school, I just never picked up on the skill of reading. He says, but I was a smart kid. I was a clever kid. Uh, and uh, people just thought that I was just lazy and rebellious, but I was always able to, like, get out of reading, get out of, like, telling people that I can't read, and I was just too ashamed to go and tell them that I didn't know how to read. And this man says, you know, I, now I see that it was a huge mistake, but what could I do? I was, you know, I was suffering. And the director goes and interrupts him and says, you should know that I know what you, what you mean, because re, according to our research, most of the kids who drop out of school or yeshiva suffer from dyslexia or other reading problems. And the guy goes and he continues his story and he says, you know, I couldn't be bothered with schoolwork. I got my big sister to go and do my homework. She probably just thought I wasn't studious enough, and she did it. Um, and this is how I just got through life without just knowing how to read. And when I want to get something, when I want to figure it out, I just use my wits to figure out what I needed to, what I needed to know. He says, and he gave me an example. He says, one time I was in my yeshiva, and there was a notice put on the bulletin board. And all the boys were, riding, were sitting around it and were looking at it. And I was so curious. I wanted to know, what does it say on the bulletin board? But I can't read. So I go over there, and I look at it. And then I go and I say, ah, it's just a ploy. So one of the students next to me goes, what do you mean it's just a ploy? He says, they're asking for money. And he responded. He says, well, you think the parents are going to put up with that? Meanwhile, he has no idea what he's talking about. And then the other boy says, 
what do you think? The yeshiva is going to go collect money for a Shabbaton and they're not going to have a Shabbaton? And then this, this boy goes, I guess we'll just have to wait and see. And he walks away smiling because he just figured out what it says on the bulletin board without even having to, uh, you know, to read or to ask somebody what it says. And this is how he got through life. He got through life just trying to like, you know, using his wits and clever remarks to go get out of anything that was reading related. When he was about 21 years old, he was set up with a girl, a nice girl, and, uh, and they got engaged. And his kala, his fiancée, would write him letters. But he says, I couldn't answer them. And then now he started to cry. He says, I couldn't answer them. Uh, but what could I tell her? I can't tell her I don't know how to read. I'm a 21-year-old man. I can't know how to read. I just told her I wasn't the letter-writing type. And she goes and, she says, and he goes and he says, you know, the real problem was is that she wrote me letters, but I couldn't even respond. I couldn't even, even respond to what she said. So, I, you know, I tried to, like, get her out to, like, what she wrote in the letter, and then I would sort of respond verbally. And this went on, and for the few, first few years of my marriage, I was able to get out of it with all my customary tricks. But eventually, there came a time where I got sort of stuck. And that's when my little boy got older, and he started learning how to read, and he wanted me to test him. And he goes over to me and says, Abba, can you test me? And I says, no, I can't. I'm busy. I tried to use all different, different excuses. Eventually, the little boy got frustrated. He says, you know, Daddy, Abba, why can't you go and sit with me? I need help over here. Until he goes and he says, my wife saves the day. And she goes and says, you know what, Abba's very busy, Daddy's very busy, I'll sit with you. You can, read, you can read with me and I'll test you. And this guy goes and he says, I suspect that she knew my secret. But she pretended not to out of respect. She repeated, and, and he goes and he says, I, this was confirmed when I realized that she always volunteered to fill out forms. And she always asked me about the mail that I received. She always says, you know what, let me, let me take care of that. Any paperwork, I'll let me do that. She didn't do that. And the guy goes on and says, you wonder why we didn't talk about it? How come we didn't go and discuss it? He says, you know, there were different times. People were different. We didn't discuss our feelings back then like, you know, people discuss now. And he goes on and she says that my wife not only respected my inability to read, but she respected my bigger problem. And that is that I didn't want to tell anybody about it. And she didn't even hint to me that she knew about my problem. And he goes on and he says, this, this increased my respect tenfold. This reminded me, she goes and he says, of Rachel Imenu. It reminded me of Rachel where she went and she did her chesed for her sister Leah. And she never even told Leah that she did anything for her. And meanwhile, he goes on and he says, you know, I tried my hand in business. I, tried in, I got into real estate. And he goes and he says, when I was 30 years old, I went and I bought an old house. I renovated it and I sold that out as a profit. With that money, I went and I did two more houses and did the same. And he goes on and says, in about 10 years go by, I became wealthy. And now I could hire lawyers, I could hire accountants. And I told them they, they're going to read the contract. They're going to read everything. And they, uh, they just tell me where to sign. I told him I didn't have time for this. Meanwhile, he says, you know, I've never read, read a contract in my life. He says, I just signed where they told me. I figured out how to scribble my name. And wherever they told I never read a contract, I just signed it. Meanwhile, time was good to, to us. And we married off four of our children. And everything was going nice and, and, and rosy until two years ago. Since two years ago, our youngest son, a father of three children, was killed in a terrible car accident. And you can imagine what it's like to bury one of your own children. There are no words to describe the pain. The grief was unbearable. And during Shiva, he made up his mind, this man said, I made up my mind to be strong for the sake of my son's widow and my little grandchildren. He says, but unfortunately my wife wasn't able to withstand it like me. She was totally shattered. She's be, she, she like, she, everything just broke. 
And I had to give her my full emotional support. I had to, you know, and he said, I felt like I owe her. I owe her for all those years of devotion to me. And he said, I went and I retired from my active role in my business. I gave it off into the hands of, prof- of professionals. We started traveling a lot. We, did a little, we, we started little chesed organizations in my son's memory, which keeps both of us busy. But this is the, what I spent, you know, my time helping my family now, and especially with my son's widow and, and my grandchildren. Now, they live very close by, and they spend a lot of time in our house. Now, two weeks ago, this man goes and says, my five-year-old grandson came up to me and asked me, he says, can you learn with me Chumash and Rashi? He doesn't have a father to learn with him. So he goes over to his grandfather, can you learn with me? So now I'm thinking, how long can I go on making excuses? How come? He says, my wife wasn't up for it. How do I know she wasn't up for it? Because she wasn't doing it. She was too broken. She couldn't do it. And he goes over to this director and says, there's no way I'm telling my grandson that I can't read. So I came over here to your organization because I want you to find me the best person to teach me how to read. And I want to start as soon as possible. And the cost doesn't matter. Money is not an issue. I will pay whatever it is. As he concluded his story, the director now is in tears. He's never heard such a story. This is such a moving story. He immediately calls the secretary and he says he called one of our top reading experts. And the top reading expert comes in and he starts uh, you know, giving him the instruction. And he says, the, the, this tutor goes over to this businessman. He says, you know, when do you want to start? And the businessman says, says, right now, if we're able to. And they went and they started learning right then and there. You have an elderly gentleman, over 60 years old, he started learning to read for the first time. Within a week's time, he learned all the letters of the, of the alphabet. This, was, this story happened in Israel, and this was, so it was in Hebrew. Three months go by, and he could read and write perfectly. One day, the tutor comes, uh, comes to the director, and he says, you've got to see this. And he goes up and he sees in one of the rooms where he, t- he taught this uh, student, this elderly gentleman, how to read. He saw over there sitting, writing on the desk, and he was sitting and he was writing a note. And he was sitting there, we're all looking at that smile. Look at this, just three months ago he, couldn't, he didn't even know how to read. Now he's writing notes. So we walk into the room, all there beaming with pride. And we see as we get closer that this elderly gentleman is very emotional. He has tears in his eyes. And he has a bundle of old yellow letters tied with a ribbon. And when he sees us, he goes and he explains, says, you know, these are the letters that my wife wrote to me when we were engaged. And he says, you know, I was never able to read them. He says, last night when she fell asleep, I pulled out the first letter and I read it from beginning to end. And just now, over 40 years later, I answered her letter. And he was shaking all over, trying unsuccessfully not to cry. And then he goes to him and says, do you think, he said crying, that this will make her happy? And we couldn't answer. Why? Because they were crying as well with him. And that was the best answer for that. This is somebody who is over 40 years married. And now all of a sudden he's writing back his wife the letters that she wrote to him over 40 years ago on their engagement. So the lesson that we could learn is that no matter how far, how old, how far off you are, no matter if you can't read, no matter if you are so far from God that you can't even think or see God, there's always a way back. There is always a way and there's always a time. And that's what God tells us. During the days, God says, Ayeka, where are you? He goes to each and every single one of us. Where are you guys? 
Where are you? So we could say, you know, we're here. We're, we're coming. Where does it matter? It, come, it matters which direction we're going. It doesn't matter what step of the ladder we are on. It matters at which direction we are going. So it is incumbent during our time that we should never, ever give up. Never, ever feel that we cannot do something. We could do tshuva is for anything. And not only that, tshuva could also be for something that is part of a mitzvah, a part of a sin that you're fixing. There's something that we could do. And Bezat Hashem, with that, maybe we're able to have an amazing, successful judgment that this year will be tenfold time better than whatever we had the year before that we will open up with any uh, questions. Rabbi Citron, uh, for, oh, um, did you a question in the chat? Yeah, I was going to read it, but you could go ahead. Uh, for, for the issue that the rabbi had mentioned of um, basically like corrupting the public, what, what do people do to remedy that? Because, you know, it's, it's out there. You can't, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tooth. You're saying if somebody caused people to sin, many people to sin? Yeah, yes. So if somebody caused, right, so if somebody caused um, many people to sin, one of the ways that they could do um, tshuva for that is do the opposite, causing many people to come back to tshuva. So that would be spreading to uh, bring, setting up lectures, sending people to sending people lectures, whatever it is. It's it, this is zikuy abim. It's called kiruv. It's called different aspects. Whatever you want to do it. It's it's. Just because, think of it as just the opposite. You cause people to go away, now cause people to come, to come back. Uh, okay, we have here a question in the chat. Doesn't it say in Pirkei Avot that we, should, we shouldn't treat bigger or smaller mitzvot differently from each other because we don't know the reward for each? Aren't we supposed to treat each the mitzvot as all important and try to do every single mitzvot to the best we can? 100%, yes. That is, that is 100% true that we have, we have to treat every mitzvah, whether it's big or small. We, by the way, we don't know. Just because it's easy for us doesn't mean that it's small reward. And just because it's difficult doesn't mean it's great. We don't know the level of reward. But that's not what we're discussing tonight. And, and I'm, thank you for bringing that up because I do, that is important to clarify. And that is that when we're supposed to go and when we're doing a mitzvah, I'm talking about the way that you feel. Like some people, are, have a closeness. It's very easy for them to do a certain mitzvah. Um, let's say that a certain person is very uh, a warm, hard, kind-hearted person, and they want to go, and it's very easy for them to do chesed. And they love it. So for them, it's easy. Not only it's easy, it's like they need to do it. They, they want to do it. So for them, it's an easy mitzvah. It doesn't mean that it's a lighter mitzvah, it's a difficult mitzvah. It's easier for them. So it's something that they're easy for them. Now, let's say... It's very easy for them to invite people over for Shabbat. It's very easy for them to have all these things, but they don't do it just because whatever. They're just like not in the mood for something like that. So that type of person, by you, it's something that's easy to you and you're not doing it. The punishment is greater because it's simple. It's easy for you. For everybody else, everybody's on their own level. But if it's easy for you and you don't do it, the punishment unfortunately is greater because God says, oh, what? it was so easy. Why couldn't you do it? Um, okay. The next question is, how do we know when we reach our uh, potential? So that is a very good question, and that is something that will probably, um, I, I, I actually will probably speak about that next week, uh, which is, you know, I, when I was preparing for this class, I, there was different aspects of what I want to do, and I had to sort of break it a little bit up. So I might, I might speak about that next week, and how, how do we know that? But, first of all, we'll, the real answer is we'll never know until I'm 120, but um, you reminded me, thank you for me- messaging me that question, is that I gave the introduction at the beginning that 
uh, you know, I didn't want to speak about this topic, and now, you know, I came and got, you know, basically guided me towards this topic, and then the story, I didn't want to speak, I didn't even know what story, and then God put me the story that fits per- perfectly with the topic, and I never actually said what, why, what was the purpose of me giving you all that introduction. And the answer is, is that many times in life, we go through life, and we're not sure what to do. We're not sure how to go about doing it. And if we just hear and listen to our surroundings, we can see that God directs us to where we need to be. God directs us to where we're supposed to be, what we're supposed to be doing. All we have to do is be a little bit perceptive and open up, just like I feel my personal feeling that God directed me to give this type of class. Each and every single one of us in our own life, God directs you into what you need to do to fulfill your potential, to fulfill what your your task is in this world. Now, the reason why I feel that this is such an important you know, topic is that I've gotten many, many, many questions for people that they just sort of like give up. They're like, you know what, I, I've done so much bad, like there's no hope for me. And they give up and they say there's no use for it. And, and no matter how many times I tell them, no, it's not, for some reason, when somebody has that depression inside of them of like, there's, there's nothing that I could do. There's really nothing that you can do. You have to get out of it. This is Rabbi Yaakov Galinsky says the number one block to do tshuva is that depression, the thing that you can't do it. Each and every single one of us could do. And that's why we focus specifically today on aspects that you could even do something small. Even though you have something that, even if you're still involved in the sin, but just fix something small on that. That in itself is good. Okay, looks like we have... Uh, concluded the questions and with that we will wish everybody a Shana Tova Aktiva Bechatima Tova You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com